In John 16, we'll be reading verses 16 to 24. If you didn't get a bulletin, you feel free to get one now or a printed message there at both exits. There should be an outline in the bulletin and then the full text of the message in the printed messages along with extra verses that I won't have time to turn to here. Jesus is almost to the end of his instructions to the eleven in the upper room or else on the way to the garden just before he is betrayed and crucified. And he says, a little while and you will see, you will no longer see me. And again a little while and you will see me. Some of his disciples then said to one another, what's this thing he's telling us? A little while and you will not see me. And again a little while and you will see me. And Because I go to the Father. And so they were saying, what is this that he says a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wished to question him. And he said to them, are you deliberating together about this that I said a little while and you will not see me? And again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again. And your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy away from you. In that day, you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, so that your joy will be made full. The late Scottish preacher Alexander White observed that we all tend to hang very heavy weights on very thin wires. And what he meant was that we hang our happiness on fragile things, things that can easily and quickly be taken from us, our health, our mates, our children, our jobs, our homes, our possessions. Certainly all those things are good blessings from God and uh, we're thankful for them. But the point is they're inadequate as a foundation for our joy because they're also uncertain and transitory. Now, any major loss, of course, is emotionally painful, but it's crucial that we learn how to work through those losses biblically because we're all going to face them. Uh, Peter in 1 Peter 5 says that it is right at times of suffering. He says, be careful. Your enemy prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. It's in those times of suffering that Satan knows we're vulnerable and Sadly, I have seen many Christians who have been wiped out spiritually because they didn't know how to handle suffering biblically. 
for example, some have the mistaken notion that because they believe in Jesus and they're following him, they're somehow going to have this protective shield around them and trials are just going to bounce off and not even affect them. That's not so. And when they suffer, they wonder, well, God must have somehow abandoned me if he even exists, and they fall away. I've seen others who have been told that they need to claim their healing by faith, and when they aren't healed miraculously, they begin to question, and then, to add insult to injury, they're told, well, you just don't have enough faith. Uh, Still others have been under the impression that it's unspiritual to grieve or to shed tears. And so they put on a happy face and they're around other Christians and they try to say praise the Lord a lot. But inside they're really grieving, they're really hurting, they're really dying. And the disparity between that causes deep problems in their emotional lives. In our text, Jesus is preparing the disciples for what he knows they're going to experience in the next few hours, overwhelming sorrow. As they watch Jesus, their Lord, be arrested and mocked and scourged and that crown of thorns on his head and then crucified and laid in the tomb. And so their whole world comes crashing down around them. These are men who had staked everything on the hope that Jesus was the Messiah. Everything. They had left homes and belongings. And they were hoping that he was the one. And that previous Sunday, their hopes were riding high as he rode into Jerusalem. And the crowds are shouting, Hosanna! Hosanna to the king, to the son of David. And they thought, yes, this is the moment we've been waiting for. And now just a few days later, everything comes crashing down. And there's this shocking end as they watch their Lord suffer and die. And so Jesus is preparing them and I believe us for times when we suffer by showing us that he, the risen Lord, is going to turn our sorrows into lasting joy as we look to him in faith and prayer. Now, the text begins in verse 16 with Jesus saying, A little while and you'll no longer see me, and again a little while and you will see me. And this causes a lot of confusion among the disciples. And uh, interestingly, it causes a lot of confusion among Bible commentators too. And they debate back and forth about what is he talking about here. Some argue that the first little while uh, refers to his ascension when they will no longer see him. He's ascended into heaven. And that the second little while refers to his second coming when they will see him again. There are others who take the first little while to refer to the ascension and the second little while to refer to the disciples seeing Jesus spiritually when the Holy Spirit descends on them at the day of Pentecost. It seems obvious to me, however, from the context that the first little while refers to Jesus' death, which is going to happen the very next day. And the second little while, when they will see him again, refers to his post-resurrection appearances 
when he is with them. Uh, When Jesus was crucified, the disciples would weep and lament, as he says, but his enemies would rejoice. But then after the disciples saw the risen Lord, um, their sorrow would be turned into joy, and no one could take that joy away from them. And that, in fact, happens in John chapter 20 and verse 20. The disciples saw the Lord, and they rejoiced because they saw him risen. But we still need to face reality. And reality is that we're going to face sorrows in this fallen world. God decreed death as the penalty for Adam and Eve's sin. And that death was imposed on the entire human race. And while Jesus has taken away the victory of death, the sting of death, 1 Corinthians 15 says, he has not yet taken away the fact of death and the emotional pain that we feel when someone that we love is taken from us. And so we need to recognize that being Christians does not insulate us from experiencing deep sorrow. And the deeper we loved, of course, then the deeper our sorrow is going to be, especially when the loved one is taken away unexpectedly, just instantly, or uh, we, we don't see it coming. Uh, The point we need to understand here, I believe, is that there is nothing unspiritual about feeling sorrow or feeling uh, grief. Now, true, as Paul says in 1 1 Thessalonians 4, he says there that we grieve, yet not as those who have no hope, but we do grieve. Our grief is different than the world in that we have hope with the Lord beyond the grave, uh, but we grieve, and As we sang in one of the songs this morning, and as Isaiah 53, 3 says, even our Lord Jesus was a man of sorrows, a man acquainted with grief. And if he, God in human flesh, knew sorrow and grief, there's nothing unspiritual or ungodly about grieving. Uh, G. Campbell Morgan was a godly Bible teacher and pastor of, oh, about 100 years ago. He, He died in 1945. But when Morgan was 30, he and his wife lost their little baby girl in death. And uh, 40 years after that, when he was 70, he was preaching on Jesus, raising Jairus' daughter from the dead. And he made reference to the loss of his own little girl, who in spite of their prayers was not healed. And he said this, She has been with him for all of those years as we measure time here. And I have missed her every day. That just hits me in the gut. (laughs) I have missed her every day for 40 years. He goes on, but his word, believe only, has been the strength of all the passing years. Six months after his daughter's death, he wrote in his diary, Today I am 31 years old. Surely goodness and mercy have followed me all the days of my life. There have been no accidents, all under the Father's government, and all best. And so the point is, here's a man, he knew the sustaining grace of the Lord, but every day for 40 years, he felt the loss. He he grieved over that little daughter. 
And like him, I think we should seek our comfort in the Lord, but recognize it's not ungodly to have those feelings of sorrow, those feelings of loss when something like that happens. Now, our sorrows, of course, can be caused by many different factors beyond death or besides death. Uh, Many more than I can list here, but I just pick a few from our text. First of all, note that sorrow can stem from disappointment when something doesn't go as we had hoped it would go. Uh, If you remember on the Emmaus Road, I assume it was two men, could have been a man and his wife, it doesn't tell us, but when Jesus encountered those two disciples uh, and they didn't yet recognize Jesus, they made a statement in Luke 24, 21. They said, but we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. You can see disappointment written all over that statement. We were hoping. Oh, it was he. But now he's dead. He's crucified. And the disciples were there. They had put, as I said, all their hopes that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And in their mind, Messiah would come. Messiah would reign. He would usher in this age of peace and blessing as prophesied in the Old Testament. And so they had forsaken everything to say Jesus is the one. And now they could say we had hoped. We had hoped it was he. And they were deeply disappointed. And if you've been a Christian very long, you've had a similar experience. I was hoping, you know, I, I, I prayed in line with Scripture and I, oh, I was hoping and it didn't happen. And you experience sorrow. Another reason you experience sorrow, it can stem from confusion over something in the Bible or something in your circumstances. The disciples were confused here about what Jesus was telling them. What is this? A little while and you will see me, won't see me. A little while and you will see me. And they didn't know what he was talking about. And then, of course, that was just the first course they were going to be plunged into deeper confusion in the horrific events of the next few hours as they watched Jesus suffer and die the most shameful, painful death imaginable. And in spite of Jesus' repeatedly telling them that he was going up to Jerusalem, he was going to suffer and die and be raised from the dead, they couldn't conceive of a Messiah dying. They camped on psalms like Psalm 2 and Psalm 68 and Psalm 110 and those psalms that talked about Jesus the victor, Jesus the king. Jesus was going to reign. And they just didn't recognize Jesus in Psalm 22 or Psalm, or I mean Isaiah 53, the suffering servant of the Lord. And even so, there are many times I get confused and I imagine you do. Because I understand part of the scriptures. I just don't understand all of it. You know, I have preconceived ideas about, well, it's got to be this way. And I read right over verses that say, no, it's not. And then it catches me up short when I get clobbered with some trial. A third reason for sorrow is it can stem from the seeming triumph of evil people. Jesus here 
says that the world is going to rejoice over his death. Talk about perverted values. Right is wrong and wrong is right. And when that happens, you know, you, you scratch your head and you go, what is going on in this world? The smug religious leaders were gloating. We got rid of him, finally. That pesky preacher from Galilee. And they were rejoicing when they should have been grieving. And you know, in our day, you see the horrific evil of these Muslim extremists beheading all of those men on the beach in Libya there, and you just go, wow, wrong is right, and right is wrong, and where is God? And it can cause sorrow. Another reason here for sorrow, it can stem from just living in a fallen creation. As I said, because of Adam's sin, the whole creation was subjected to futility and death, as the Bible says. And although Christ conquered sin and death in his victory, his resurrection, it's still with us until he comes again. And so we are subject in our own bodies to disease and death. We have loved ones. Subject to that, we all fight against the flesh that indwells us all. And uh, we're all sinned against at some time. And when that happens, it causes a lot of sorrow and a lot of pain. And some who are terribly sinned against, molested as children and that kind of thing, it takes years to work through the emotional scars that that kind of sin causes from living in this fallen world. So the point is, being Christians does not insulate us from sorrow and grief and suffering and all of that, but we need to know how to handle it. And that's what our text shows, that the risen Lord Jesus promises to turn our sorrows into lasting joy. And I want to deal with this by asking and answering three questions. First of all, what kind of Savior is Jesus? And then secondly, how does he turn our sorrow into joy? And then finally, why does he turn our sorrow into joy? First of all, what kind of Savior is he? And just, of course, I could go through the whole Bible here, but I'm going to limit myself to these verses. And we see that Jesus, first of all, is a sensitive Savior, a Savior who is gentle with his own children. He knew that the disciples here were confused about what he was saying, and he rightly could have chewed them out and said, how long are you idiots not going to get it, you know? I mean, come on, I've been telling you over and over and over again what it's like, what's going to happen. He doesn't do that. He patiently acknowledges their confusion. He assures them that after this time of sorrow, they will experience lasting, permanent joy, and, you know, sometimes we, we take the sovereignty of God and make it a cold doctrine. You know, like uh, Jesus could have said, hey, come on, buck up, guys. It's all predestined to work together for good. So I know the future is all going to work out. And he could have been very un, insensitive and, and uh, unsympathetic to them. And he's not that way at all. I love Psalm 103. And especially in verses 13 and 14, where David says, Just as a father has compassion 
on his children. So the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. Isn't that a comfort? He's a a tender, loving, compassionate father who knows they're just babes. And he comes along and gently helps us along wherever we're struggling. Jesus is a sensitive Savior. A second thing we see here is that Jesus is a suffering Savior who willingly went through this unimaginable sorrow on our behalf. In just a few moments, he would be in the garden sweating those great drops of blood as he contemplated being made the sacrifice for our sin. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7 says that he offered up both prayers and supplication with loud crying and tears. Again, it wasn't just like stoic, okay, this has to be, let's get it over with. He was crying out to the Father and, and with tears. And on the cross, you know, he cried out in great agony. Psalm 22, 1, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Hebrews says that he willingly endured such hostility by sinners against him on our behalf for the joy set before him so that he might bring many children to glory. And so Hebrews 4.15 tells us we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in all things as we are and yet without sin. So we have a sensitive Savior. We have a a suffering Savior. We also see that the Lord Jesus is the risen Savior who triumphed over sin and death. In verse 22, he says, Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. And I believe the dramatic change in the disciples from being confused and scattered and fearful and even doubting into bold witnesses, that dramatic change was because they saw the risen Savior. And everything about the Christian faith, as the Apostle Paul says, everything uh, rests on the foundation that Jesus was raised bodily from the dead. Paul put it this way. It's kind of shocking how he puts everything on this. 1 Corinthians 15, 17. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. Wow, what a statement. Your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. And so these men, the apostles, were transformed from these cowardly, uh, confused and and doubting men into the bold witnesses in the book of Acts because they saw Jesus risen from the dead. They saw him ascended into heaven. They knew he's coming again to conquer sin and death and to reign. And of course, at that moment, all of our sorrows are going to be transformed into permanent, perfect, instant joy when Jesus descends from heaven with a shout. Now, how does the Lord then turn our sorrow into joy is the second question. And just touch on four ways here. First of all, the Lord turns our sorrows into joy by showing us the glory 
of the cross. Again, we sang about that this morning, and that was a great song. But to have seen Jesus bloodied, beaten, hanging on the cross must have been the most horrible, shocking event in the disciples' lives. Uh, I assume, at least from a distance, they saw him. John, we know, went to the foot of the cross. That's later in John. We'll read that. I know many of you have seen the Passion of the Christ. I deliberately have not seen that movie because... I read a review of it by the late film critic Roger Ebert. And as you know, Roger Ebert saw all kinds of films. And he said, by far, that is the most violent film I have ever seen in my life. And I thought, yikes. If if he's seen some pretty brutal films and that's the worst, I don't think I want the image of that burned into my brain because I don't watch violent movies. I don't go to these war movies that are rated R for violence. And... And uh, yet the disciples saw it in person. And it must have just been unbelievably shocking to them. But here's the amazing thing. When you read their letters in the New Testament, they don't bring up the horror of the cross. They bring up the glory of the cross. Have you seen that? They always talk about the cross as being glorious as being this great event because the cross, of course, is the basis of our forgiveness, the basis of our sins being wiped away. And it was the basis for which they could go out and preach, you know, in the name of Jesus, we proclaim to you forgiveness of sins for all who will believe. And it was the cross. And so Paul could even write, you know, may it never be, that I glory in anything except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the cross, the glory of the cross. And here, the significant thing is, Jesus doesn't say that the disciples' sorrow would be replaced by joy, you know, set the sorrow aside and let's bring in something new for joy. He says, I'm going to turn your sorrow into joy. The very thing that caused them sorrow, the death of Jesus, would later become the source of their greatest joy. And he uses the analogy of a mother in labor. And uh, I know we have anesthesia-free childbirth today, but in that day, before they even knew the, the breathing techniques and all of that, you would hear a woman in the next room screaming out in anguish. And you think, she's dying in there. And a few moments later, you duck your head in and she's beaming with joy. And the source of her sorrow was the same source of her joy, that new baby. The very thing that was causing her all of the anguish and pain is now the center of her overflowing joy. And the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3 says that our sufferings Bring us into fellowship with Christ so that we share in his sufferings and through that attain to the resurrection from the dead. In Romans 8, he says, The sufferings of this present time aren't worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us when Jesus Christ comes back. And in Hebrews 12, it tells us that if we fix our eyes on Jesus, 
who suffered and died for us, then we can endure the discipline that he brings into our lives, knowing that he is using those trials to conform us to the image of Christ, and that, of course, someday uh, our sorrow will be turned into joy. So that's the idea here, that he shows us the glory of the cross of our salvation, and through that, our sorrow is turned to joy. A second way that the Lord turns our sorrow into joy is by giving us an eternal perspective. It's interesting, the Lord didn't answer the disciples' questions that night so that when the cross happened, they went, oh, we understand now what's going on. Yeah, we can handle this. Uh, They were still confused after that evening, but he gave them instruction that later they could look back on, as John is doing here, and say, ah, we see the big picture. We see what God was doing now. We see... Uh, remember after the resurrection in Luke 24, it says he opened their minds to understand the scriptures that Messiah had to suffer first and then enter into his glory. And they got it. They went, oh, that's what the Old Testament was all about. That's what the sacrifices were all about. They got the big picture and that enabled them to endure suffering for the sake of his kingdom. Same thing happens in Psalm uh, 73. I love that psalm. It's so honest. The psalmist there says, I just about despaired because I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They don't have pains like I have. You know, they're, they're doing good. They're prospering. They're fat and happy, you know. And me, I've been suffering all day long since I followed the Lord. What gives? And he says, I just about lost it until I went into the sanctuary of God. And then I perceived their end. And there he says, they're going to be cast down and judged. But he says, but God is my portion forever. And God is going to receive me into glory forever. And he gets the eternal perspective and it turns his whole perspective on his trials and the prosperity of the wicked around. And that's the point here. And Paul, you know, in 2 Corinthians four seventeen says, these momentary light trials, you know what he's talking about? Being beaten, being scourged, uh, being imprisoned, being stoned and left for dead, being shipwrecked, being rejected by all kinds of people. He says, these momentary light trials are producing for us an eternal weight of glory. An eternal weight of glory. He had the eternal perspective and that enabled him to endure his momentary suffering. A third thing, third way the Lord turns our... Uh, sorrows into joy is by being the mediator between us and the throne of grace. And he repeats in verses 23 and 24 his promise to answer the disciples' prayers offered in his name. We saw this in John 14, 13 and 14. We saw it in John 15, 7. We saw it in John 15, 16. And so I'm not going to deal with it in depth here, but What we've seen is that to ask in Jesus' name means to pray in line with his will. It is to pray not on the basis of anything in us, but on the basis of his shed blood and his righteousness. And we're asking for his kingdom and for his glory. In other words, we're asking that he would do what he wants to do to further his name, to glorify his name in a situation 
And Jesus is saying here, when we pray in that way and he answers, our joy is going to be full. Now, when I preached on John 14, uh, verses 13 and 14, I explained there are going to be times, I've had them, where you ask in Jesus' name, you're praying for something that's not for you, you think it will further his kingdom, you think that what you're praying for is going to glorify his name, and it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. Praying for a loved one and they die without Christ, that kind of thing. Now, at such times, we have to trust that God is going to work in ways that we don't understand, that uh, he, he's, he can answer in ways that we can't even think or ask, Ephesians 3. We have to understand sometimes he accomplishes his purposes in ways that seem totally backwards to us. And sometimes we just don't understand all that God is doing. We only see a little slice of the puzzle, and God has the big picture. And so we have to trust that he knows what he's doing, even when it doesn't seem to go the way we wanted. But the point here is, when you pray and God answers, you're, you're just flooded with joy. We've all had that experience. You know, wow, I asked the Lord for that and he, he did it. And uh, it has to be a God thing, you know. I couldn't have done it. God did it. That's what Jesus is talking about. And then a final way that he turns our sorrows into joy is when we see him risen from the dead through eyes of faith. In verse 16, verse 17, verse 22 here, he talks about the disciples seeing him again, and then they will be filled with joy. Their hearts would rejoice. And this is the kind of joy nobody can take from them. Imprison them, beat them, kill them, and they go out joyous. Why? Because they've seen the risen Lord. Now, of course, they saw him physically, and we can't do that. But you know how we can see him? We can see him spiritually with eyes of faith. And we can base that on the apostolic witness. They saw the risen Lord. They were there historically, and it transformed them. We have to take their word for it, but there's good evidence for it. I love First Peter writing to suffering Christians and uh, some of them were being uh, killed by Nero, some of their members. And in 1 Peter 1.8, he says to them this, And though you have not seen him, that's true of us, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but, here's the key, you believe in him, faith, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. How much more words could he add to say, you're bubbling over with joy. You know, you can't even contain the joy because you see Jesus with eyes of faith. And you know what? When you suffer and you cry out to the Lord, it's in those times that he is more real to you than when life is going smoothly. Haven't you experienced that? I have. You look back and you say, wow. You know, at that time, I had to rely on the Lord. There was nowhere else to go. And, and because you were so going through the ringer, 
you saw Christ in a way that you don't see him just when life is sort of smooth. You see him with eyes of faith, risen. And in that moment, in that moment, your sorrow is turned to joy. And of course, the ultimate joy is going to be when the trump sounds and the archangel shouts and Jesus comes back and we will be like him because we shall see him as he is, 1 John 3, 3. And at that moment, our joy, no one can take away from us. It will be eternal joy in Christ. So we've seen that Jesus then, what sort of Savior is he? He's the sensitive, suffering uh, Savior who is risen from the dead. How does he turn our sorrow into joy? Through the glory of the cross, through giving us an eternal perspective, by being our mediator to the throne of grace, and by letting us see him risen from the dead through eyes of faith. And then finally, I want to answer the question, well, why does he turn our sorrow into joy? Is it just to make us happy, or is there a further end? Well, two reasons. First of all, he turns our sorrow into lasting joy because we grow to be like him through this process of suffering and seeing more of him. In James chapter 1, James has that strange command that you're to consider it all joy when you fall into various trials. Why? Well, knowing that the testing of your faith works these character qualities in you, patience and endurance and all of those things. And Paul says something similar in Romans 5 where he says he actually exults in his tribulations. And you're going, is this guy nuts or what? He says he exalts in his tribulations knowing that they produce perseverance and proven character and hope. And hope doesn't disappoint because the love of God is poured out in our hearts through Christ. And uh, maybe you're thinking, well, couldn't I just skip the sorrow part and get on with the joy? <laughs> you know, I don't like the sorrow part. But there's an interesting verse in Hebrews 5.8. It says that Jesus learned obedience through the things he suffered. Now, it's not like us. We're disobedient, and we learn how to obey through suffering, hopefully. He was never disobedient, but he experienced what obedience is like through suffering. Uh, For example, I've used this analogy before. You know, you might boast to me, my kids are really obedient. Watch this. Kids, eat your ice cream. And they wolf down their ice cream. And you go, that's not obedience. You know, obedience is when you say, kids, eat your veggies. And they go, oh, dad, okay. And they do it. You go, they are obedient children. You see, the test of obedience is not when things are going well. It's when you suffer. And Jesus learned that kind of obedience through the cross. And so through our sufferings, we will learn to be more like him if we submit to him and trust him in the process. And then finally, he turns our sorrow into joy so that we'll be able to point others to his all-sufficiency. You know, it's only when the grain of wheat falls in the ground and dies that it brings forth much fruit, as we saw in John chapter 12. And Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 that God comforts us in all of our afflictions, so that we will then be able to comfort others in their afflictions with the comfort with which we've been comforted by God. 
read a story in Our Daily Bread many years ago about a uh, Salvation Army officer. This is years ago. He was preaching in Chicago on the street. And a man interrupted and shouted out, You can talk about how Christ is dear to you, but if your wife were dead as mine is, and if you had babies crying out for their mother, you wouldn't say what you're saying. Well, a few days later, actually, the preacher's wife died in a train accident. And at the funeral service, the grieving husband stood there beside her casket. And he said, you know, the other day when I was preaching in Chicago here in the city, a man said that if my wife were dead and if my children were crying for their mother, I couldn't say that Christ is sufficient. He said, if that man is here... I'm telling him that Christ is sufficient. He said, my heart is crushed and bleeding and broken, so he wasn't denying the pain. He wasn't just putting on a superficial happy face. He was hurting. But he also said, but there's a song in my heart, and Christ put it there. And the Savior speaks comfort to me this very day. And actually, the man who had been the objector in the audience, was there that day, and he gave his life to Christ based on that man's testimony. Let me just conclude here with two applications and then a final observation. The first application is this. In times of suffering, spend more time in God's Word, not less time. It's not the time to slack off on the Word when you're going through it. Now, the book of Proverbs, chapter 1, warns us The time to get God's wisdom is before the storm hits. Don't wait till you're in the trial and go, oh man, is there a verse somewhere for me? No, you should be grounded in the word. But my point here is, don't give it up in the moment of trial. Up your intake of the word. That's, you know, it's like when you're sick. That's when you need all the good veggies and vitamins and everything to get your body what it needs to get through it. And you need the strength of the word in those times. A second application, in times of suffering, spend more time in prayer. It's in the context of suffering that James says there in James 1.5, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. And here, in the context of the disciples' overwhelming sorrow, Jesus reminds them again, ask in my name. Ask in my name. And so a time of sorrow is a time to be on your knees a lot more and uh, go to the throne of grace. And then finally, just note that the flip side of these verses is this. The world's joy that comes from stuff that can perish is temporary. Let me say that again. The world's joy that comes from things that perish is temporary. It's going to be taken from them. And their joy is going to be turned into sorrow when all the stuff they put their hopes in perishes or they perish and they face God in judgment. But for the believer, though we have momentary sorrow and suffering, the foundation for our joy is eternal. Because when we see Christ and he says, well done, come into my presence, everything Everything will be joyous, and that joy 
cannot be taken from us. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help my brothers and sisters who are going through times of sorrow and suffering right now to see your glory, the glory of the cross, the glory of Christ risen, the glory of the promise of Christ returning, and that they would endure with that solid undergirding of joy even through their tears. And that we would be a witness to those around us whose joy is in things, whose joy is in temporal stuff that's destined to perish. We could show them the solid, lasting joys that we have in Christ. I would ask, Lord, if any are here who don't know the joy of salvation that you would bring them to the foot of the cross, that they would see that they're guilty before you without Christ, but that Christ offers a full and complete pardon to every sinner who will believe in him and promises the joy of eternal life to the chief of sinners. And so I pray, Lord, that you would open blind eyes to see and that No one would leave here without the joy of salvation today. For Jesus' sake, amen.